0: Welcome back y'all to another episode of the What in the Sam Hill podcast where I investigate paranormal phenomena, high strangeness, cryptozoology, ancient mythology, and the delightfully odd. I am your host and resident nerd Aaron. Before we get started with today's episode I want to encourage you to check out the substack. There we have show notes for each episode that contain relevant links to papers and articles used in research for the episode. I also want to encourage you to share the podcast with your friends. Let's build a community of weirdos together. This week we are going to be talking about the Fox sisters. Margareta and Catherine Fox, along with their much older sister, Anne-Leah Fox Fish, known as Leah, are famous for being supposed mediums who channeled spirits beginning in 1848. They are sometimes credited as the founders of spiritualism, though this is a mischaracterization of their prominence. These girls were certainly not philosophers. The ideas which underpin the spiritualism movement began long before with Swedish mystic and polymath Emanuel Swedenborg, and then were continued around the same time as the Fox Sisters by Andrew Jackson Davis. Regardless, the Fox Sisters are inextricably linked with the specific movement that developed in western New York in the mid-19th century and spread from there across the United States and into Europe. Interestingly, this happened not far from where Joseph Smith founded Mormonism a couple decades earlier. I'll clarify, though, that the Fox family were not Mormons, but rather Methodists. I just find this to be an interesting coincidence. The Fox sisters famously returned to prominence at the end of their lives when they recanted and claimed that they had been faking the whole thing, discrediting both them and the movement writ large. That's the basic understanding I had before this week, anyway. This is actually a case that I had wished were true. I was hoping that if I looked into it, that I'd find that they'd been pressured into retracting their accounts. I was hoping it wouldn't be another week of me telling you that Santa isn't real. Instead, I found a bevy of things that made me wonder how anyone believed them to begin with. Also, I think at the very least, Maggie Fox might have been a trash human. Let's get into it. First things first, Leah, Maggie, and Kate consistently lied about their age for their entire lives. Even to this day, spiritualist researchers do not know the exact ages of Maggie and Kate. When this whole thing began, they could have been anywhere from under 10 to almost 18, according to various government documents and inconsistent personal accounts. It's not necessarily the end of the world, many women lie about their age, but it does show a character for mistruth that will continue throughout this saga. As much as possible, I do want to go in chronological order here though, because there is a lot going on and it's easy to get lost if we jump back and forth. You'll see that I mostly focus on Maggie Fox because I find her to be the most interesting, but I will include some bits and bobs of Kate and Leah as well. we talk about the experiences of the fox sisters you'll hear me call them rappings. this is because all of the spirit communication reported by the fox sisters were in the form of raps or knocks much like a modern day ghost hunter would ask for from a spirit when they wanted a question answered in more than yes or no they would go through the alphabet letter by letter the so-called spirit would knock when the correct letter would be called out And in that manner, they would get the slow and tedious answers to their questions. I imagine by the end of the process, some people probably would have forgotten what the questions were anyway. So we don't have any true mediumship here with clairvoyant or clairaudient abilities. This is in stark contrast to the mediumship I have experienced performed in spiritualist churches today. So I do want to specifically state that my very obvious low opinion of the fox sisters is not a reflection of any spiritualist movement any specific medium any specific movement um, that is still in practice today so 1847 in december kate and maggie fox along with their father john and mother margaret move into a house in hydesville new york near rochester that has been previously reported to be haunted by past residents honestly i think this is partly why these events took off The surrounding neighbors were already predisposed to believe in a haunting. It's much like the movie Casper when Christina Ricci tells her classmates that she lives in Whipstaff Manor and their faces drop in equal parts horror and curiosity. The neighbors probably couldn't help themselves but be interested. Also, if you didn't want a chair roller coaster that took you down into your secret underground laboratory after watching Casper, I don't trust you. 1848. March. The occasional sounds heard in the Fox House grow in frequency until it culminates on March 31st with youngest daughter, Kate, challenging the ghost to knock back to her. Thus, they allegedly learn that they can communicate with a spirit. The thing that bothers me about these initial encounters is that as soon as they start trying to quote-unquote contact the spirit of the house, it gets into a wild accusation. The so-called spirit says he was murdered five years before by a previous occupant of the home and that he had been buried in the cellar. In Arthur Conan Doyle's book on the history of spiritualism, he states that the name of the murdered man was Charles B. Rosma. However, the early newspaper accounts I found said that the spirit only gave his initials as CB and would not give his full name. Conveniently, the spirit was able to give the full name of the man who murdered him and supposedly the social pressure from the accusation was enough that the accused had to gather letters testifying to his innocence and high character. That's legitimately slander to make false accusations like that and I do consider them false for a couple of reasons. First, like I said, the early reports say that the ghost was able to identify his supposed murderer but not himself. That's very convenient for when it comes time to try to verify the accusations. And then on top of that, I was able to find no evidence that anyone dug up a body in the cellar at that time. Instead, it seems that it wasn't until 1904 that someone found a skeleton in the cellar, which I'm sorry, but that could have been from any time between 1848 and 1904. It doesn't prove that anything happened before 1848. To his credit, Arthur Conan Doyle, himself a spiritualist, works hard to prove that a crime was committed in that house when the spirit said it was, but it's a lot of circumstantial evidence and after-the-fact witness testimony. Later in 1848, Maggie and Kate both move out of the Hydesville Cottage. Kate moves in with their brother David, and Maggie moves in with their sister Leah in Rochester. Wrappings start at both residences, but are supposedly more violent and more interactive in Rochester with Maggie. Maggie and Leah put on the first public demonstration of the wrappings in 1849 at Corinthian Hall, which just so happens to be the largest venue in Rochester, and the so-called spirit just so happened to select it. If only you could see my eyes roll back into my head here, of course the spirit would just so happen to select the largest venue in Rochester to make its appearance. And right here we've got a year, only a year into these shenanigans and we're starting to perform publicly. The grift is strong with this family. Not only that, quickly following these initial incidents, we suddenly have a whole handful of people in the surrounding communities who were also so-called mediums, then a couple handfuls, and a couple more, and so on. Based on my own experience with the paranormal and as a medium, I can say it's not the damn chicken pox. It's just not contagious. The fact that it became in vogue tells me that this is more Salem witch trials and less anything genuine. Allow me to read a passage from Arthur Conan Doyle. The danger of blindly following alleged spirit guidance was clearly shown some months later in the neighboring town of Rochester, where a man disappeared under suspicious circumstances. An enthusiastic spiritualist had messages by raps which announced a murder. The canal was dragged and the wife of the missing man was actually ordered to enter the canal, which nearly cost her her life. Some months later, the absentee returned, having fled to Canada to avoid a writ for debt. This, as may well be imagined, was a blow to the young cult. Now, I understand that cult 100 years ago had a very different connotation, but I feel like the modern connotation is probably pretty accurate. I mean, this spirals very quickly out of control and is shown false time and time again And yet it continues to grow. It's not so different from modern cults in that way. And it definitely reminds me of Miss Cleo or someone like that where it's clearly a grift and yet you still get people paying money and interacting. As far as public reception, yes, they did seem to be able to fill the largest venue in Rochester with looky-loos. But almost immediately, you get skeptical reports in the newspapers. There are clearly some believers, but as the Fox family grows in reputation, you get more reports of people going in there and successfully tricking the supposed spirits. There are suggestions that they had to move the show from Hydesville to Rochester in order to get a new crop of unsuspecting targets. You also get many reports of people saying it's very convenient how the spirit was really accurate when it came to people that the Fox family already knew and how you only heard the knocks when the girls were around and the knocks were only on furniture with which the girls were in physical contact. So that's pretty much how this story begins. In 1851, Leah, Maggie, and Kate all write into the New York Tribune to discredit a report given by their distant cousin Betsy Culver, who claimed the girls had basically admitted that they made it all up. The newspaper notes that while the sisters wrote to clear the name of their father father in particular, they held back the letters because they included wild and irrelevant claims that would cause the newspaper to participate in libel if published. This reminds me of the gaslighting abuser who, when confronted with their own misdeeds, counter with wild claims and accusations that are intended to make you feel crazy for even suggesting that they might be acting inappropriately. Now we get into 1856. Maggie supposedly marries family friend and famous Arctic explorer Elisha Kent Kane before he leaves on what would become his last voyage as he dies in February of 1857. In 1858, also in February, Elisha's father, Judge John Kane, dies. It seems that at that point, Maggie saw an opportunity. That summer, Maggie begins to claim that she and Elisha were secretly married before he left. She challenges the Cain family and Kane's estate for $5,000 that she claims he was supposed to leave her in his will. Notice she doesn't immediately bring up these concerns after Elisha's death. She waits a year and doesn't file action until after his father's death, when he could no longer use the Cain influence in the legal system to block her attempts at gold digging. Maggie even changes her name to Margaret Fox Cain to become more convincing, I suppose. Then in August, Maggie renounces spiritualism and gets baptized into the Roman Catholic Church. At this time, Kate is still active in spiritualism, as is Leah. This change in Maggie was supposedly at the influence of Cain, so I'm sure this was still part of the efforts to win money from the contesting of the will. But it begins a cycle of performative back and forth with her religion that will last the rest of her life. Again fast forward to 1865. Maggie publishes a collection of letters written to her or supposedly written to her by Kane with the help of a journalist. In it she gives a very colorful and probably embellished if not completely falsified account of their relationship. A newspaper article giving a review of the book indicates that there was a supposed arrangement between the two families, that Maggie would get some of that sweet, sweet inheritance money if she handed over all of these letters. They didn't pay, so her friends, and by that I mean she, published. So the words extortion, blackmail, and smear campaign all come to mind. Definitely a grift in my mind. The question is, how much deceit is in the grift? To me, if she had the letters already, why wait until 1865 to publish? Why not do it in 1858 when you're actually trying to score that five grand? To me, this reads as a woman scorned who took a few years to write up some letters and have them published as one last grift off the Kane name, or perhaps one last jab at his family. All we really know about their relationship is that he took an interest in her and sponsored her education. Perhaps he just saw that she was a bright young woman who, as a daughter of a blacksmith, was not going to be able to afford the education she was capable of achieving. I'll say she was clearly intelligent based on the amount of successful grifting that she had going in her life. Maybe he just saw her taking those talents down the wrong path with the spiritualism grift and wanted to help. Perhaps he even saw that she was being used by her parents or older sister for these purposes. It's hard to say. The only indication we have of them having a romantic attachment is Maggie's words after the fact. And given the fact that she also claims she was 13 at the time, I don't really trust her. Moving forward to 1868, I found a blurb in a newspaper saying, the spiritualists claim to have a printing press in Philadelphia, which has no other motor than spirit power. Mrs. Margaret Fox Kane had a hand in it anyway. Which brings up so many questions for me. Is this sarcasm? Is this Maggie's latest grift? At the very least, it seems that Maggie had given up the Catholic church to go back to spiritualism at this point. I did see a later article that claimed that Maggie was a good Catholic and while she did participate in mediumship, she did not attend spiritualist groups or meetings. I'm guessing that probably wasn't totally true. While I would imagine that Maggie was the type to grift alone rather than with true believers, she must have had at least some connection to other spiritualists to have a printing press with them. Not only that, but the fact that she was the only name mentioned means that she would have been the most prominent of the spiritualists in Philadelphia at the time. 1870 At this point, Maggie is definitely full-fledged back into spiritualism. She's actually holding public circles and marketing it in the newspaper as for investigators. As in, please come debunk me if you dare. 1872, Kate marries English barrister and member of parliament, Henry Diedrich Jenkin. So the youngest daughter of a blacksmith was able to marry a member of the English parliament, to me, that's only possible because of the grift. 1875, we have Maggie getting tied up in the estate hearings for ever, ever. B. Ward, the richest businessman in Michigan, specifically Detroit. He had apparently been consulting with her and the spirits regarding how his will should be written. Then he dropped dead. She, of course, had told him to leave all of the business assets to his pretty young wife that he had definitely been cheating on his first wife with, not his kids from his first marriage. It reminds me of what didn't happen in her own supposed marriage, but hey, I guess at least she didn't write herself into that will. 1881, Kate's husband dies and she moves back to New York with her sister, word on the street is that she becomes a full-fledged alcoholic at this point. 1885, Leah, under her thrice-married name of Leah Underhill, publishes a book with their story. To call it revisionist history probably isn't strong enough. It definitely paints the family with rose-colored glasses. 1886, Maggie writes to the Rochester Union in response to an article about them, suggesting that she and Kate have absolutely no recollection of the events in 1848. And I just don't believe that. Neither does anyone else, apparently, because in 1888, we have something completely different going on. 1888 is the culmination of all the conflict up to this point. Leah was still fully entrenched in the spiritualism groups, but Maggie and Kate were on the outs. Supposedly, like I said, Kate was a full-blown alcoholic, and Maggie had her own drinking problems, and there were myriad other issues as well. On October 21st, 1888, Maggie both issues a signed confession to the press and gives a public presentation at the New York Academy of Music with her sister Kate in attendance. In this confession, she demonstrates how she falsified the wrappings by cracking the knuckles in her toes. No, seriously, everything about this is as childish as it sounds. In addition to the demonstration, Maggie completely throws Leah under the bus and says she was the mastermind grifter behind the whole affair. Maggie claims that she and Kate were just poor, innocent children who were taken for a ride. The press also, I'm sure of their own accord, and not anything related to what Maggie had to say, makes sure to re-highlight her esteemed marriage to Elisha Kane and how much his family did her wrong. If she thought that would remedy her situation, she was clearly wrong, because in 1889, Maggie Fox tries to retract her retraction. The damage at that point was pretty irreversible, though. I imagine everyone realized what a shit show that they had been caught up in for the last few decades. Leah dies in 1890, Maggie in 1892, and Kate in 1893. Maggie and Kate died in abject poverty, so the grift really was over. At that point, the Fox sister drama pretty much ends and they end up in the lore as the mediums we hear of today. And that brings us to the conclusion of our tale. I'm sure you gather from my tone throughout various parts of this episode that I don't think much of the Fox sisters. I don't have an opinion on how much the parents or the brother David were involved or even aware, but I absolutely think Leah, Maggie, and Kate are all at fault for their part in the conspiracy. I think if anyone was taken for a ride, it was probably the youngest daughter, Kate, Though, given that she did her own performances in England and married far above her station, I don't think she was as innocent as Maggie made her out to be. Given that Kate was the one who supposedly first challenged the ghost to rap or knock on command, it's possible that the events began with Maggie playing a childish prank on Kate. Perhaps at that point, Leah figured they could make a show of it. But it's not clear how much involvement Leah really had at the beginning as she wasn't even living at the house in Hydesville when it started. Given her yo-yo of a life and various other grifts to get herself into the newspapers, I think Maggie Fox was probably a very manipulative person, so I wouldn't be surprised if she faked it and blamed it on Leah. After all, when this started, Leah and her baby had just been abandoned by her husband, so if anybody was going to be backed into a corner and forced to go along to get along, it was Leah. I wouldn't be surprised to find out that Leah was more of a true believer and Maggie threw her under the bus as one last act of revenge, or maybe to take Leah and the movement down with a sinking ship that was her own reputation. It's hard to say. It seems like a multi-decade saga of she said, she said. There are many accounts of the Fox sisters out there that completely ignore the claims of fraud and just take it on face value, which I find really hard to stomach given how many versions of events there are from the mouths of the Fox sisters themselves. All in all, I don't think the Fox sisters were all that talented. I don't think they're all that important. And I think they were probably garbage humans profiting off the gullibility of others. That's going to wrap it up for this week's episode. If you have any personal experiences or thoughts you want to share, please leave a comment on the Substack post. I would love to hear your thoughts on the matter and continue the conversation. Until next time, in the immortal words of Euripides, question everything, learn something, answer nothing. I'll see you next week with an episode on Alaska's Bermuda Triangle.